The business of culture, the culture of business, markets, policy, media, and technology, entrepreneurs. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Generally, you're looking for cash-flowing businesses, businesses that already have product market fit, that already, you know, well-running, and you're looking to apply the skills that we learned, you know, in my corporate career to be able to kind of grow that brand. You could do roll-ups of many kind of smaller companies, and then you either sell the company, exit the investment, or you can keep it. If you can't beat them, the saying goes, well, join them. But if you don't want to beat them or join them, why not buy them? That's right. More and more MBAs are on the prowl for outright business buyouts. Why go to Wall Street or into some Fortune 500 grind when established businesses are looking to sell now to precocious B-schoolers armed with both capital and hunger? It's a trend called entrepreneurship through acquisition. Let's check it out. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me yet again is Matthew Boyle, senior reporter at Bloomberg covering the workplace at, what is it, the future of work. That's a vertical uh, work shift at Bloomberg. You've been all over the work from home, beat the long tail of the pandemic and this hangover and office spaces you've been on before. And I found this headline this week, this amazing trend, MBAs are spurning McKinsey to buy small companies. Sir, how are you? I'm doing well, Robin. Thanks for having me. Well, I love it when you have your ear to the ground and you're hearing these trends. I mean, you and I, I mean, I'm always going to embarrass you with the great story just to illustrate your grit, Matt, that you took your Ivy League degree and to become a journalist, a magazine journalist at the turn of the century in New York, you kept your head down, you worked as a doorman, you worked through these PR jobs, these trade publication jobs, eventually got hired by Fortune. You came over to Business Week and here kind of 25 years into it, a quarter century into it, we are covering how much the entire kind of white-collar office culture has changed. And I remember at that turn of the century when the dot-com bubble burst, they called B2C was back to consulting. What is it? B2B was back to, I mean, the old back to banking and back to consulting when these things happen. And so while we've had a dislocation now with MBAs, there's this idea that if big firms and uh, Wall Street and McKinsey and the like are just slacking on hiring, why not take a flyer and go out and acquire small companies yourself, young exactly. MBA? Exactly. And that seems to be what's happening. I mean, I picked up on this. I think I was having a lunch with a, with a source who just mentioned something about, you know, small, medium businesses being bought and MBAs being involved. And I said, you know, I'll look into it. Um, and then once I looked into it, I realized this is whole, it's still niche. So it's, it, you know, it's not really, um, you know, a, the most popular choice for MBAs, but it is a growing niche, certainly, and it can be a very lucrative one. I mean, it is not for every business school student. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of risk involved and you need to be, you know, you're not only buying these companies, you're running them. So you are a CEO overnight. So if you are not ready for that, experience as well, you know, you might want to take the safer corporate job at at Google or Adobe or, or you know, Morgan Stanley or something like that. But for the ones who do it, they really do get a lot out of it. And they also can, you know, generate a nice little return for their investors who help them out as well. Entrepreneurship through acquisition, it sounds presumptuous. And I remember uh, in my business school experience, there were people who had done tours of duty in private equity or consulting and everything. And, you know, Lord, give me the confidence of an MBA out there putting it out as feelers like I'm funding a special acquisition company where effectively I'm going to use my alpha, right? Whatever it is, I'm going to use my expertise to come in and take maybe a sleepy or underperforming business. And it could be the most mundane thing in the world. These two guys in my section, uh, Charles, and I forget the other guy, he came back after a long tour. They came together and they settled on this balsa wood company. I mean, they came back and said, balsa wood, I mean, the growth of hobbyists and bridges and these things, and then there was a, a, a classmate of mine who'd worked at um, 
Danaher and all of these companies his entire life. He was a CPA type. He was very analytical, great with spreadsheets. You imagine him becoming a CFO. But then he was brought in through this acquisition company that then went and did a roll-up of garage door openers. Yeah, it's, uh, so, it's you know, funny. I, like, I mean, what, it's... what in your experience, kind of what makes that click? Like, I, I understand the economics. We've read about doctor offices and um, practices or even real estate being rolled up or old businesses that really could use economies of scale or purchasing power. But I guess there's something scintillating and exciting about really mundane mom and pop businesses. Yeah, it's a lot of them are mom and pop. You know, it's plumbing businesses, pest control. But one thing I noted is that the types of companies that these searchers, you know, are are going to looking to acquire, it is expanding. So, you know, um, they want profitable companies. Obviously, they they want companies that are not subject to a lot of cyclicality. So, you know, you're not going to be buying like a you know a, a lobster shell in Maine that's going to get you know tons of business in the summer and then nothing they're actually expanding into businesses you know slightly more boring but certainly lucrative like software b2b software is a big area for ETA right now tech enabled services and just sort of general business services you know I talked to one guy who said yeah I'm, I'm looking for you know software companies that help underpin insurance company claims and I mean that was like it was boring me to tears but I could definitely see how lucrative that is if you know if you're tied in to those big insurers and all the claims they process, anything to make that easier and more efficient, that's a business you certainly want to be in. So I think one thing we're definitely seeing is that it's not just the Main Street businesses, you know, pest control and plumbers anymore. And let's not forget, the big PE firms are rolling those up actively. We had a story about that just about two months ago. Um, so they're seeing also more competition. They're not just competing against other MBAs. They're sometimes competing against the big boys of private equity. So it's a really fascinating space, Robin. So there is this kind of sweet spot. If in my in my conversation with private equity types and entrepreneurship through acquisition types, and you and I have been on the other side of this as magazine journalists getting pitched by people when they say parenthetically, like, if you only knew how much money was in dental equipment. I mean, the upcoming retrofit against lead fillings is gonna be just a once in a five hundred year alpha event. And you know, my eyes are rolling and I'm looking at the stake and my watch. <laughs> but it gets it gets people excited and they look at the economics and the exit multiples of something like this. Can you step back for our listeners, Matthew, and explain kind of there's something that's not so small, like it's a corner shop, you know, grossing $40,000 a year and not so big that a Blackstone or a, uh, you know, a big private equity shop is going to have it in its crosshairs at hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars, but something that um, could, you know, be supercharged. You could bolt into it. You could bring in expertise. You can rationalize the cost structure. Can you kind of hold my hand and walk me through it? Yeah, I mean, exactly. We're looking at businesses. I think the the one of the, the average of the median price of these companies that they're that these guys are paying, you know, it's about fifteen, sixteen million dollars. They're paying EBITDA multiples of around seven. A cash um, flow. Will you say earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization? I want to break that out. That's yes. cash flow. Yes. Um, so these are, you know, so these are businesses that are generating cash. Um, but as you say, Robin, they're a little bit sleepy. They've been run by someone. And usually it's, it's let's say, it's probably a baby boomer, maybe someone who founded this business decades ago. It's a family-run business. It's a passion project. And let's just say it's getting a little sleepy. It's getting a little long in the tooth. And the owner wants to retire to Florida or somewhere comfortable. You know, he or she wants out. And maybe their kids don't want to take it over. You know, their kids want to work at Google or Goldman or something like that. So they are looking to sell but it's not easy. I mean, you've you've got the searchers then having to go in and really do a lot of due diligence. And sometimes they're doing this all on their own. Other times they have investors and advisors to help to guide them through their search. They don't buy a lemon. That's the last thing you certainly want. But they're going in then and saying, okay, whether you, whether I'm getting money from investors to buy this or I'm going to take a, a small business administration back loan and uh, and do it on my own, they are really going to come in as the CEO of this company and you know they're going to be looking for efficiencies. Maybe they are going to cut some staff. Maybe they are going to you know spend a bit more on marketing. Uh, you know, use Salesforce, figure out a way to generate more clients, more customers. Essentially, make this profitable business even more 
profitable, grow it. And you're right, sometimes there could be a roll-up involved. You might buy two or three of the same type of company in a particular region and get those economies of scale. Uh, but sometimes it's just buying one company, holding onto it, turning into a much more efficient, more profitable company, and then selling it six or eight years down the line. Matt Boyle, why did Oliver Stone kind of train me to reflexively imagine Bud Fox selling out his father to Gordon Gecko in this There's example? A, a little bit of that, and they get very, very, um, uh, they don't like it, the ETA folks, when you start comparing them to like the LBO giants and, and the like. And it, it is different. I mean, there are similarities, of course, but it's different. You know, big difference, of course, is that the big time LBO hotshots are usually not running the companies that they're buying and tearing apart and all that stuff we remember from Wall Street. They are buying and not and holding and running. That's the that's the key thing here is they will be the CEO calling the shots, living and dying with their firm, and also you know getting to know these employees, running a workforce. That's another big part of this. These guys are not just money guys. They're not just throwing you know tr trading pieces of paper around. Uh, they're running this business and making decisions that really matter to these you know to the local employees that that they're hiring. So I do think the sort of, you know, the the LBO king comparisons here are are unfair, but you're right. They're, you know, this is almost like a mini PE sort of deal here. Um, but uh, what I do like about this is that, you know, they're they're buying and holding and actually leading these companies into more fruitful pastures here. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're joined yet again by Matthew Boyle. Officially, I can call you friend of the show, Matthew. I guess we could send you a gift card to Applebee's or something. I'd love that. He's a senior reporter at Bloomberg covering the workplace. Um, and, you know, the uh, vertical there, work shift. He's been all over work from home. And this headline really caught my eye this week because I also have been hearing about this mega trend are coming back. MBAs are spurning McKinsey to buy small companies. Entrepreneurship through acquisition is seeing a surge of interest among B-school grads. I guess that, you know, this opportunity in a slack environment for major Wall Street and, and corporate and software hiring, you figure you could do worse. But the question I do have is, Matt, capital is not cheap right now. We've seen the Fed take rates up by more than five points in a year and a half, and that's caused all sorts of businesses to contort. It's caused major layoffs. Even the broad unemployment rate is low. The cost of capital is a problem. So even if you have the hottest MBA managerial talent, even if you did a tour at, back in the day, I guess GE was worth something, or you yeah. were at McKinsey and you were a PE person or Bridgewater and you had this magic touch and you came in, money is not cheap right now. You're saying I'm going to go in with a cost of capital, you know, maybe in the high single digits and ring out a return for my investors. I mean, how, how does that lend itself to uh, kind of that arbitrage that I can ring out and, and make a return north of my cost of capital, which the Fed has increased for everybody. Yeah, I mean, you're right, Robin. It's going to be uh, money is money is more expensive these days. So, you know, whatever you are actually borrowing now, um, you're also dealing with different types of financing, though. Sometimes these ETA deals are done through seller financing as well. So there are different avenues that they can pursue in terms of how they are acquiring these businesses. Uh, some of these MBAs also have a good chunk of savings built up. They've worked for eight, 10 years in corporate America. Um, and, you know, they are able to plug some of their own money into these deals uh, as well. But uh, overall, you're right. It is, it is a more treacherous environment where with interest rates where they are. So it's kind of raising the stakes for these guys to be able to wring those efficiencies out of the business, um, you know, as, as soon as they, they land these deals. Um, and again, not every uh, not every ETA uh, searcher finds a deal. One out of every three search uh, searches uh, does not result in an acquisition. So sometimes they're just failing uh, completely to find a purchase. And other times, you know, you might be buying a company and not really able to generate uh, as much as a return as you want. Um, but we are talking about in the data I've seen from Stanford uh, Graduate School of Business, which does a biannual survey of all these uh, sort of ETA searches. Um, you know, you're talking about uh, pre-tax returns of, of 35%. Um, and, uh, you know, three out of every four searches that, you know, that lead to an acquisition, uh, you know, are uh, are making money. They're making a profit. Um, so they are, they do seem to be able to navigate um, in what is, a, as you say, a more precarious interest rate environment here. 
Explain how, you know, you talk about this this golden cellar, this elusive search for, you know, it reminds me of when my dad, my dad was trying to get me to buy my first car. He goes, you don't want to buy a used car from a used car dealership. You want to find this elusive elderly couple that put, <laughs> you know, that put 5,000 miles over 15 years on a Thunderbird. And it's just been sitting in their garage and they're non-smokers. And that itself would take a search, right? So yes. you, if you're in there and you have access, you know, these business schools, HBS and Stanford, uh, Columbia, all of them, even you know UVA, they want to be seeding this stuff because you could look glorious coming out of it. So they might provide in-kind help and other things. You have proximity to classmates where you could raise a lot of money. You have proximity to mentors where you could look back and say, hey, do you want to be part of my you know fundraising uh, long tail? But then you have to shell out a lot to find this. Would you describe it as a headhunter who goes out into the great wide open to look for this elusive business? Yeah, well, there are brokers. Yeah, you can hire a broker to help with your search. And I know some ETA people do that. Of course, then you're, you know, you're dealing with middlemen and you're, you know, um, sacrificing a little bit of, uh, of your, your, your return there. But um, yeah, one of the, you know, one of the searchers I talked to, this former Green Beret, and there are a lot of military people in ETA uh, because, you know, they are very comfortable in uncertain terrain. They are fine with risk and they also, you know, are, have experience leading leading teams of people. You know, he told me that he's been reaching, he's reached out to more than 5,000 different firms to find that so-called golden seller, you know, that perfect company run by the nice old couple that are just looking to retire. And, oh, look at this nice boy. Oh, he's, you know, he's ex-army. Uh, what a wonderful opportunity for us to sell this business. Um, and he told me this, uh, this Green Beret guy, he's come close twice uh, but both deals fell through. Um, he told me just recently as I was finishing up the story that he, he's got a line on a third one. And, uh, you know, I wish him the best. But, um, you know, this is uh, this is pretty challenging. One of the more interesting bits of info I heard from the people I talked to, is they said, you know, to do this right, you almost need a degree in geriatric psychology to really understand <laughs> the motivations of these baby boomer sellers, you know, who put their whole life into these businesses and, you know, um, and can be, imagine, quite fickle in terms of what, under what terms are they going to sell for what price, you know, are they going to commit seller financing, you know, so even the most well-prepared searcher, you know, with their, you know, scintillating Harvard or Stanford uh, uh, MBA in their pocket is going is gonna to have a challenging time doing this for, for sure. But in fairness, to sound mercenary, you only have leverage while you're operating it. I mean, they say in business school, you have a BATNA, best alternative to negotiated agreement. So if you say, no, we're, we're not doing this, it's not like you're in a liquid market. It's not like there's a fund of funds or a Fidelity or T. Rowe Price has us as an acquisition company just for your peculiar business. Again, I've met families with this. I met one who does... Um, you know, hearths for gardens. Yeah. There's all sorts of non-correlating assets. I've, you know, had a friend who rolled up senior move providers, which was a very fragmented business. Um, it didn't work out. They recently sought bankruptcy protection. It's not like you have that much uh, in the way of alternatives. Uh, you could go to business brokers and others, but when you get someone coming to you, especially if the price is rich, do you know what yeah. I'm saying? It's a matter of asymmetry. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there may be more people, you know, searching around um, for for similar businesses, but can be a bit of a needle in a haystack. But what's also interesting is, you know, this allows these MBAs to, to not have to, you know, work on the coast, for example, they don't have to be in New York or San Francisco, or, you know, they can go back to their hometown in, in Nebraska or Missouri, you know, and figure out a business that they might want to to buy there. So I thought that was in sort of another interesting facet uh, of this uh, as well, was that, you know, not only are you avoiding avoiding the corporate grind, you know, you can go back and make a difference in your, in your home community. Is there, uh, do you work, I mean, when they sit around and brainstorm, uh, with with the headhunters and with their professors and everything, do you start with like a mega trend? You know, I was talking to uh, a hunter and a person. I'm fascinated. I mean, this is neither here nor there. I'm fascinated by the explosion of feral hogs in the American South and at you know parts of Florida and Georgia and the Mid Atlantic. These ancient, I guess, agricultural swine who've so perfectly adapted to multiplying. In the great wild, and they eat acorns and birds' eggs and everything, and trapping them has become really elusive. And there's an yeah. opportunity in the those who do whole 
whole sounder trapping, right? He was walking me backwards through it. The economics of doing this and being able to swoop in, in Texas and in other places uh, with this thing that, that links to a proprietary smartphone app, you wouldn't believe it. My um, goodness. Do you, do you start with the, I mean, in your experience, do they start with the trend first and say, you know, record number of people are getting, I guess, knee replacement surgery as boomers retire or XYZ. And then they kind of try to get I don't even know how I'm saying this. Try to get examples yeah. or people to fill in the blanks and say, yes, there's an app for that or there's a service for that. And in fact, it's underfunded or it's poorly managed. I mean, you could start with a mega trend, but I mean, that's tough, Rob, because you got to determine, is it a mega trend or is it a mega fad? You know, is it something that's just going to, is it bubbling right now? And 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 six months from now, we're all going to be, for it's going to be gone and, and lost and forgotten. So that's why I think when these guys are doing due diligence, and sorry to say guys, but, you know, men and women are doing due diligence. Uh, 13% of searchers are now women, which is uh, more than double what it was a few years ago, uh, which which is a promising sign. Um, but when they're doing this diligence, I mean, they, they do have some rubrics and the academics and their professors they talk to do lead them through a lot of sort of, you know, sort of like, let's call it a basic training for, for ETA. You know, how do you narrow down companies in terms of the profitability, the lack of cyclicality, the eventually a you know, promise of, of returns down the road. And so whether it's feral hogs or, you know, um, back office, uh, you know, billing software for for insurers, um, you do need to be right. If you're going to call a trend, you, you sure as hell better be right in calling that trend rather than, let's say, maybe just looking more at an industry that has very favorable margins, not a lot of cyclicality or seasonality to it, and then betting on the you know betting on the industry or the subsector rather than you know a, a mega trend that, as I say, could uh, could easily be a fad if you don't call it right. I wonder if the if the play here, it's like they used to say, you know, Goldman Sachs used to say during the dot com boom, don't invest just in dot com plays, invest in the toll keepers of the inter yeah. information superhighway, the Cisco's and the switch the one makers. Selling, yeah, picks and shovels, right? Cisco. Picks and shovels. So are there are there MBA whisperers or enablers of this gigantic entrepreneurship through acquisition thing to kind of be a a wholesale play? Like if I'm thinking I'm a firm that wants to tap into us because I'm I'm interested in this as an investor. It's one of those things, as you know, Matt, it's a non-correlating investment. Uh, people yeah. are going to it because big tech and Wall Street are pulling back. And so that is a valuable thing to have. And mom and pops might zig when other big things are zagging. So are there are there people or personalities or companies or trends that kind of fell through the crack that kind of tipped you off that say, wow, you know, these are going to win regardless? I, I mean, I think it really comes down to for the for these MBAs, you know, talking first to you know the professors and the people, but then also these sort of informal ETA clubs that have cropped up. There are now ETA conferences. Stanford just had a big one. Harvard holds one as well, and they're branching out to uh, to other schools where you just get you know um, you've got buyers and sellers, and, and you've got advisors and investors sniffing around. And I think through those conversations. Um, you know, whether or not you find uh, an ETA whisperer or not, you're sure as heck going to be a lot better informed when you launch out on this search. So you're not just sort of going, you know, going it alone. And let's remember, you know, there are also the, what they call these core search funds where you do have a team of advisors behind you, giving you advice, giving you even support staff. Um, a sense of where you might be looking or or not looking, so that you do find you know whether or not you find that golden company, uh, maybe you find a silver company or a bronze company, one that's good enough to start out with, and it sure as heck beats you know schlepping to Wall Street five days a week. But you personally didn't have one of these revelations in the reporting for this. It's like you know Dustin Hoffman would be told plastics. I would I be told wish, feral yeah. feral hogs. Yeah. Somebody else was balsa wood or garage door openers. Was there anything that came out to you like? Uh, uh, this is in my reporter's notebook. I mean, the fifth time I heard kind of non-lead dental filling shift no, I over. Did, I did actually. I mean, I wish I talked to more more searchers. I talked to about half a dozen, um, but a lot of it, yeah, was sort of the more 
mundane yet profitable, you know, B2B software type of stuff that I, you know, I, I write, we write about all the time, whether it's for, you know, HR tech or, or what have you. And I know that's obviously an, an exploding area, maybe not as hot as it was two years ago, of course, with so many startups floundering right now. I mean, if, if I had that secret, uh, that secret industry, Robin, you know, after this podcast, we'll, we'll get together uh, over some burgers and uh, we'll plot out. Our, you should uh, say titanium back replacement or, you know, some other thing that you're noticing. Well, remember, <laughs> yeah. Remember those artificial discs, you know, 10, what was yes. it, 10 years ago, they were supposed to, we were all supposed to replace our, our herniated discs with artificial discs. And that, that became one of the biggest scandals of all time. Those, those discs were just blowing up everywhere. So again, be careful what you call a megatrend. Every fund manager visiting me at the turn of the century at, at the Wall Street Journal's old magazine, Smart Money, is like, you got to buy out. You know, we're talking about a record clip of replacement for knees and hips. And yep. I, I mean, as you get older, you realize kind of what they were prophesying. But then again, who could have seen, uh, you know, the roll ups of dental practices or electricians or, you know, d derivatives on this whole work from home thing, which we would love to talk to you again about, I guess, in the minute or so I have left with you, Matt. Yeah. Are you surprised? I mean, this is a bit of a U-turn, but well into the end, hopefully, of this pandemic, we are still dealing with, at best, maybe a 60% of pre-pandemic work from office capacity. I mean, this has been brutally difficult to get people to come back. Well, you're right, Robin. It's lower. I mean, we just got the latest numbers for a 10 city average across the U.S. is just barely creeping over 50 percent. And one thing that everyone forgets about those numbers, Robin, that is 50 percent of pre-COVID occupancy, which was not 100 percent. You know, so you're talking about 50 percent of about 70 percent. So, I mean, what it tells me, though, Robin, is that you know, guess what? Lo and behold, the American worker and workers around the world, by the way, they have gotten used to this flexibility that they were afforded during COVID, and they don't want to give it up. And why should they give it up when they are just as productive uh, and often happier and more content and certain and sometimes more engaged, um, you know, than they were going and shopping in five days a week? And that's not to say everyone should be fully remote. Of course not. I think the best approach is a smart hybrid one where you're into you're in the office for certain days when you have a reason to be there maybe it's a brainstorming session or one-on-one -on -one mentoring with a younger colleague which is really done well in person but then if you got to put your head down and write a story like you and I used to do all the time um, you know, work from home and, and bang that thing out where you don't have a million distractions of the office and don't have to schlep in an hour each way on you know the train subway or uh, a crowded highway. Matthew Boyle, senior reporter at Bloomberg. He covers the workplace at, uh, we see it at Handle the Future, Bloomberg Work Shift. I love this headline, MBA spurning McKinsey to buy small companies. Please, please, sir, do come back on the show. Would love that, Robin. Always a pleasure. Full disclosure, do stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, all fine podcatchers, including an especially Apple podcast. The link, please tell your auntie, call your girlfriend, is FullDRadio.com. Again, FullDRadio.com. Please subscribe, enthuse, and spread the word. We, of course, have NPR's Steve Inskeep coming in for full disclosure live at the University of Richmond's Robin School of Business, October 25th. Uh, tickets are free, but we ask that you buy his book on Lincoln and a Divided America. Again, NPR's Steve Inskeep at the University of Richmond's Robin School, the evening of October 25th. You can follow it on all my socials at Full D Radio for details. Joining me from the city of brotherly love is Angela Romero. She is a graduate of the Wharton School's executive MBA program. In fact, her acquisition company is Wharton Capital Holdings. Uh, graduating out of this, you're looking for acquisitions, I guess, in the hospitality and lodging space. Is that right, Angela? That's correct. Yes, Robin. And without offending you, could I ask how old you are? I'm 37. You're 37. And I'm going to take back from a testimonial that you had on Instagram when you were accepted to the executive MBA program, if you'll let me. Of course. You said, I moved to the U.S. from Columbia when I was 19 in search of a better life for me and my mom. I was terrified. I didn't know English and I had little savings. 
In the beginning, I attended free ESL classes at night and cleaned houses during the day. When my English was good enough, I started my educational journey. This journey was long. It took me eight years to go from not knowing English to learning English to transferring to a community college to finally transitioning to a four-year university, all while working full-time. I continued to pursue my dreams, and I applied to Wharton. I'm thankful this is back then. You were saying I was accepted and now doing the executive MBA. I got to ask you, for starters, that's a lot. I mean, in your contemporaries who are who are doing two-year tours of duty and consulting firms or in marketing at serial companies and the like, take me back to when you first came to the United States from Colombia. Thank you, Robin, so much for having me on uh, the Full Disclosure uh, podcast. I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to share my story and hopefully inspire some folks out there um, trying to do uh, something entrepreneurial. Um, I mean, honestly, it's like what I said, it, it was terrifying. I, I, I remember that on the flight here, it was the 2nd of uh, January, um, and and I just cried, literally cried all the way to the flight. Um, there was no Uber. Wait, or, coming to the United States? Yeah, I cried all the way. Um, because I was like scared. I didn't know anyone. I didn't know how, how it was going to turn out. You came with your you came with your parents? No. You came by yourself to the United States as a nineteen year old to which city? Um, Oakland, California. What was in Oakland? Um, I had an uncle there who received me. I was very thankful for that. So I guess re- looking back to your high school years in Colombia, were you looking for? work, a better life? Did you want to get out of the country? I could tell you that having, you know, as I said offline, Colombia has had a really miraculous 20 years. I mean, it was almost a failed state when FARC was at the gates of Bogota. A lot of hairy things happened at the early part of the century, and it lost population, and people came to the United States. But what was your impetus to come here? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when I moved here, uh, it was 2004. And so at that time, Colombia hadn't had that magic turnaround. Uh, it was just starting to have that magic turnaround under Alvaro Uribe, as, as you very well mentioned and covered. So, you know, we just didn't know like what, what was going to what was going to happen. Yeah. And obviously the States is, you know, a dream country where if you work hard, you can make your dreams come true. And so I just figured I, I, I tried my hand at that. What were you going to do when you got there? You were going to live with your uncle and try to apply to High school, community college. I mean, did you have any sort of equivalency from Columbia at that age? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I had a, like my high school degree. Uh, the plan was to do so in Berkeley. They have like free ESL classes, um, and so I I went to that to be able to get my English good enough to be able to apply to community college, um, and that's that's what I did. And the plan was really to be able to, to graduate from a four year college. Uh, but again, as as I mentioned, I didn't really have like any money. So I had to work throughout um, my time. And the best way that I found in terms of how to organize my time was to work during the day and essentially it's from like, uh, you know, five to 10, go to classes. Where did you work initially? Um, Just in houses, you know, just cleaning houses. And then like babysitting that babysitting jobs that I've kind of heard. Um, literally also like through Craigslist. I know this is random, but um, yeah, that was a long time ago. Cleaning houses when you first got here, and were you doing hotels? Were you involved? Because I know I helped. Uh, I helped resettle a family from Iraq mm-hmm. uh, about in 2017, who came to Central Virginia. And one thing that's always been open, especially before the pandemic, was you know laundry and housekeeping services in uh, hotels. As you know, there's tremendous turnover and it's labor intensive, and it's something where you can be flexible with language and. Uh, people who are kind of in interim status with documentation. Yep, yep, exactly. That was one of the many jobs that I held. And I think that kind of gave me an eye or opened my eye to like what a hotel business can look like. And then when I got into community college, my major was um, hospitality management. Um, So business and like hospitality management. What was the inflection point? Angela, when you decided, you know, as opposed to being kind of, you know, just on this blue collar track that you could potentially be management or entrepreneurial. And I know it was a long road because, you know, it's this three point turn to go to community college and and bone up on English. And then somebody opened your eyes, presumably to the power of the four year degree. And then next thing you know, you're talking about an MBA at Wharton. <laughs> yeah, you really you really hit the nail on the head, Robin, where, where we said somebody opened my eyes to a four-year degree. Um, so I was taking accounting classes and they were 
funny enough, my favorite classes. And uh, there was a professor, her, her name is Linda, and she kind of took after me because I was getting, you know, the best grades. I was always like in front of the class, like asking questions, paying attention, super engaged. And as you imagine, not a lot of people are super engaged at, you know, in an accounting class at like 9 p.m. Um, so so she just kind of took it to her, uh, her to just ask me like, hey, like, what are you doing after community college? And I was like, what do you mean? I'm done, right? And then she explained that there was this whole other kind of credential or degree that is a four-year college. And, and she was a CFO at a company. And so she kind of explained that path of going into a corporate route, going the corporate route and how that can, you know, in, increase or better my life. So she was almost like a borderline mentor at this point. It was an eye-opening thing for you because otherwise, if she didn't intervene, would you have just gotten, what, the associate's degree and continued on in, in small business or something? Yeah, exactly. They're definitely a mentor, and I'm very thankful to her to this day. And um, going back to your other question around, like, what then opened my eyes to becoming, like, to getting to a corporate job and getting more into technology, which we'll, we'll talk about, um, is... When I was in a four-year college, I was very involved in the leadership capacity in the marketing club. So we kind of got speakers that came in and um, talked to us about like their their career. And one of the speakers, her name was Luan Calvert, I believe, as she she had a very successful career in marketing, and she kind of told like opened up my eyes to tech, right, like the technology industry and so forth. So let me get this right. You went to was it San Francisco um San Francisco State University and you graduated summa cum laude in 4 years? Uh that's correct, yeah. And then I mean at at that point again if you're going to do hospitality, I went and got my MBA and a lot of the things I did as a journalist as a person who did a little stint on Wall Street, it's kind of optional at that point. Really, what did you need more than a bachelor degree? Especially if you had the marketing thing really at this point couldn't you just go and work your way up a Wyndham or a Marriott or become an associate person at a REIT or a hospitality group? Yes, uh, you are right. But I don't know. I think like I was in San Francisco. So San Francisco, the prevalent industry is technology, right? So there was a desire for me to kind of get in, into technology. And that's kind of what I eventually ended up doing. And once you get into technology, you'll see I, I did learn about all this like elite universities, which I kind of wasn't aware of before that, you know, if you want to be in leadership, most people in leadership in a business capacity have a degree from like the Whartons or the Harvards of the world. So I figured, you know, that was kind of like my next step. And, you know, I was I was I did work for a long time. Again, as you mentioned, I have an executive MBA. So this is for people who are getting into executive roles. So they're more advanced in career than the regular um, full-time MBA. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Angela Romero. It's actually a pretty amazing story. Comes to the United States from Columbia at the age of 19, works her way up in the Bay Area from community college to uh, summa cum laude at San Francisco State University, does a tour of duty at Google and Duolingo. I mean, really bones up, not just on the essentials and tech, but then really works her way up to get into the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. I mean, one of the elite MBA programs in the country. And now we have her on the show because she has this vehicle set up, as we discussed with Matt Boyle, entrepreneurship through acquisition. I mean, you are cutting to the chase. You're nearly 40 years old. I imagine that you could get recruited by a Marriott or an Airbnb or any of these hospitality brands at Disney would love to have you. But you are eager to kind of uh, beeline and, and find an acquisition company. Can you tell me how this came together at Wharton and what came into your uh, LLC, Wharton Capital Holdings? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the way I didn't know anything about ETA um, when I got into Wharton, but I did wanted to figure out or use that time to figure out if I could do something entrepreneurial. The, the thing about kind of my background is that I worked in technology and that just being like a technology entrepreneur just didn't interest me, you know, because the majority of the technology entrepreneurs have more of like a computer science background and you know it's a kind of a very male dominated field and yeah it just never really appealed to me to be honest but I did want to figure out something entrepreneurial and so when I was browsing through the clubs to join Wharton I saw this entrepreneurship through acquisition 
club um, and I started researching it. I reached out to the president at the moment and he kind of told me about it and I started doing more research and I was like, oh, this is exactly what I want to do because the difference between ETAs or like, you know, startups, for example. Again, uh, entrepreneurship through acquisition. You're not going to go and pay dues at a McKinsey. You're not going to work up the ranks or be a consultant and then, you know, play the corporate ladder. You're looking to cut to the chase. You're looking for a hospitality or lodging brand to buy now and manage and manage up. Exactly, exactly. And and the in addition to what you're saying is that generally you're looking for cash flowing businesses, right? So businesses that already have product market fit, that are already, are already you know, well running and you're looking to apply um, your the skills that we learned, you know, in my corporate career and at Wharton um, to be able to kind of grow that brand. You could do roll ups of many kind of smaller companies uh, and then you either sell the company, um, exit the investment or you can keep it. So suppose I'm a skeptical person in your fundraising and your search right now that says, I know that there are many adept public and privately traded hospitality REITs that go out and cobble together uh, properties at various stages of their lifespan, right? Mm -hmm. From very outset or boutique, or uh, maybe it's going downhill and we can manage the decline. Why you? Why should I? What do you know? What's your special know-how? Does it go back to what you first did in your early 20s? Well, uh, no, it, it actually goes back to what I did um, while I was taking doing my MBA. So I uh, bought a property here in the Fishtown area. Um, I uh, In Philadelphia? Yes, that's correct. In Philadelphia, um, I remodeled it and um, I started operating it as a hotel. Um, oh, yeah, and so that's I'm kind of it's a you know it's not a large hotel. It's like five units, but. I've learned a lot of running and operating a hotel, like I would say a boutique hotel. And so I'm kind of piggybacking on that knowledge um, of hospitality. Wait, how did you do that? How did you do that during the executive MBA? Was that your job? No. So I, I quit my job halfway through um, and I said, you know what, I'm just going to try this and see if I like it and see how it goes. And it ended up being super fun and also financially successful. So I got to ask lots of questions here. It's full disclosure. How did you cobble together the money to buy a hospitality property mid midway through the MBA? I mean, as as I mentioned, I've I'm more in the I've had a long career in technology, so I I have savings. Um, uh-huh. And the companies that I worked for went IPO'd, so I had some. Um, some of those funds available at my disposal. And could I ask what the magic is when you come in and you're given the keys to a business like that? I, you know, I'm fascinated by this stuff. I find, you know, if you listen to full disclosure, I say there's these wedding or bat mitzvah moments where I'm sitting next to somebody and I'm tuning out the DJ or the Hava Nagila or whatever it is, and I'll say, what is the one thing I need to know? And they'll say like a sushi chef will tell you don't eat sushi on a Sunday night because that's when we take the delivery. Or you might be sitting next to a funeral home operator who will steer you away something or a doctor or a GI who said, I will never eat hot dogs. What is the one thing that a hospitality person, that kind of spark, whether it's HR or it's operations or the staff comes first or the customer comes first, that you know you had that you could scale in a situation like that? Yeah, that's that's a good question. So I think the the one if we were to boil it down at the the one thing that a hospitality brand needs to have is that when the customer walks into the room, they just want to go say like, oh, you know, like, oh, this is awesome. They just feel comfortable, feel relaxed. And I would say to be able to generate that feeling in a customer, you have to do, um, I would say, three things. Make sure that the location's right. Make sure the design of the property is right so that it's beautifully designed. So when I was designing my units, I try to make sure that they look like a CB2 ad, you know, pretty much. So um, uh. buying those kinds of furniture, designing them that way. And then the last part of it is it's operations, right? Making sure the guests is greeted the right way, making sure that they, you know, have the right information and that the unit is like impeccably clean. And if you have those three components, then I think that the property is going to be successful. 
on 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 balance, who are the sellers of things like this? Is it the the older family that is looking for a liquidity event to kind of get out of something like this? I mean, and I find that you're in a sweet spot. You're getting a a, a mom and pop business or one that's not big enough for a REIT or a hotel acquirer to be in to get, but not too small, but just the perfect size for you to come in and roll up your sleeves? Yeah, exactly. And I think you touched on the point earlier. So there is a massive demographic change, right, with the baby boomers wanting to kind of retire. Um, And so they have wanted a liquidity event for retirement. And so that's um, kind of the people that I'm going after. And touching back kind of on my background, one of the things that have kind of allowed me to be successful or to connect, right, um, with the sellers that I'm talking to is, is about my background, you know, my entrepreneurial background, my kind of willingness to take chance um, and to kind of do things right and, and work hard to do things right. Um, and I think that that really resonates with, with the owners. Full disclosure, please do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, all fine podcatchers indeed, including and especially Apple Podcasts. The link is fullderadio.com. Again, fullderadio.com. Please subscribe and spread the word. And let me remind you that oftentimes, including on this episode, the podcast conversation runs long, but we're limited to 52 minutes for broadcast. So definitely catch us wherever you get your pods to get the entirety of this conversation. If you're just joining us, my guest is Angela Romero. She's a recent graduate of the Wharton Executive MBA program. She is the founder of Wharton Capital Holdings, which is an entrepreneurship through acquisition vessel. She's a grad, uh, very steeped in the hospitality industry. Uh, She's in her late 30s, and she's looking, she's hankering for a property or series of properties to buy. And you were telling us earlier that demography is, is... you know, forcing a lot of this. There are people who've been in this industry for a long time who want to sell and want to sell to the correct hands. But I got to tell you, as you probably know from my MBA experience, the ones who were out there acquiring things were overwhelmingly, you know, white private equity guys or management guys or people who were in McKinsey or did the GE training. I, I think you're really off the beaten path and you stand out as an immigrant, as a woman of color and as a self-made entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah, that is true. But I think there's there's a silver lining to it. You know what I mean? Like I, I feel that one, you kind of stand out. Um, and two, I feel like I've had to work a lot harder to kind of be able to get to where I'm at, and that means I just have the discipline to work harder than than most as well. Um, that eventually leads to success. Tell me where the search is going right now. I'm fascinated. So do you have? A full exploratory committee? Do you have a, a head? We call him a headhunter. I don't even know what that person is. The one that's finding kind of the golden opportunity out there, this business broker, this, uh, I don't know, a, a posse set up to find this elusive property somewhere. It could be in Sedona. It could be in Tucson. It could be in your native Colombia, for all you know. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's a really great point. So uh, there are two ways in which you acquire businesses. One is, as you mentioned, through brokers. So I do have a network of brokers, um, which I've created essentially like a document of the kind of business that I want to acquire. So they're you know out there hunting for me. And what I need to do is look through the opportunities that they bring to me. And then the other ones, it's really more about just not working in in person for me. I I found that to be a good channel going to conferences and talking to different hotel owners. Um, And so I think within those two channels, I hope to find something to buy because it, it needs to be the right company, right? So now that you have the you have the finance financial chops and you mm. know what the assets and 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 the values and the kind of the IRR the rate of return stuff that you need yeah. to pitch book to people isn't this a tough thing to do in a higher interest rate environment as I said to Matt Boyle you know the Fed has taken rates up above 5% it's hard to get a small business loan you did get some seed funding and a special scholarship through Wharton and you have really well placed classmates and a network now just in the diaspora of all the various companies you've been at uh but how do you even like for example you're you're coming and meeting me and my friends how do you make a an IRR pitch is it versus what the S&P might yield or what a bond yield happens how do you get down to kind of the brass tacks of financials and say, you're missing out if you don't invest with me. 
Yeah, no, I think I think that's a really great point. So generally, when we talk about search funds, they do have a tremendous um, just return. You know, what you've found is that you would make around like 30 to 35 percent compounded annually RRR. Um, and there's not a lot of vehicles that can offer that. Um, and to touch on my earlier point around cash flow. So because you're buying cash flowing businesses in a risk adjusted way, your return, I mean, it's not guaranteed, but there's, it's a lot less risky than investing in a startup that doesn't have any cash flows, right? Um, or the just straight up S&P 500. But but again, and I don't I don't want to get into the weeds. But you do have a cost of capital. You have a yeah. blended cost of capital My due, somewhere yeah. between your your savings and the equity stuff that you have to cash out of, and the opportunity cost of a mortgage and the other things. I'm trying. I'm trying to make this understandable for a public radio kind of lay listenership. There is a blended cost of capital. If you go to a VC or if you go to a very cold eyed person, they're going to ask you for kind of a usurious amount or a high hurdle for their money. Do you have a number in your head of what your capital costs right now? And I know that's a sensitive question, but this is the stuff that fascinates me and I think a lot of our listeners. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, if you go around to the banks, which we are already uh, gone to, your your cost of capital is going to be around um, 10%. Ten um, percent. Mm-hmm, yeah, which is a lot higher than when I started uh, interested in this topic about like a year ago when it was about like six or seven percent. So sure. Mm-hmm. And that zero interest rate environment emboldened a lot of thinking, right? I mean, money was chasing yield everywhere. But what is it about this that's such a great non-correlating asset? I mean, as I told you in my experience covering Colombia and its investing revolution and its boom and what happened there mm-hmm. over twenty years, is a lot of the investors would take me around the country and say. You can't get a hotel room in Medellin now. We have so many investment bankers coming here because Colombia is a frontier asset. It's non-correlating. You could pitch it to pension funds in the U.S. You could pitch it to retirees as it doesn't zig when the S&P 500 is zagging or it does its own thing. Or you know, I, w- I would meet people there who would say that there's going to be demand forever. This, this whole area is so under-hoteled that it's not going to really cleave to a particular international economy as much as other places were. And in in an environment like that, you can get chunky returns, the likes of which you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I think it it goes back to one of the points that I was making, which is once you're buying this kind of company, the company already has product market fit. So you don't have the risk of investing all this money and have, have a product that no one wants to buy. And in addition to that, I am looking into certain demographic areas to where, you know, you, you're going to see um, a lot of people coming in and not a lot of supply of hotels coming in as well. And that's just, you know, that's just more around the kind of how I select the interesting properties than not. Like you want to have some barriers of entry to, to the right um, location. So walk me through this. This is one of my favorite questions to ask. When you are grooving with your morning coffee, let's say your Tinto, or you're going to bed at night and you close your eyes, what is the dream acquisition you imagine? Talk me through it. Like it would be somebody calls you, you get this call at four or five in the morning. Would it be in Arizona? Would it be in an area that's rural, that's in the excerpts? Like tell me what you're thinking. And as your dream walks you through this, how you would roll up your sleeves and you know make two plus two equals six. Yeah, so my dream company uh, would be. I really, I'm really interested in upstate New York. Um, I think it's uh, an area just because you have New York that is never that is going to continue to have vast amount of people wanting to um, go and have a nice time or a hospitality property. Right, it is very close to New York. So it's like about an hour. Um, and there is, in some towns, there's a nice barriers of entry to where the zoning doesn't allow more hotels or where, for example, as you saw in New York, Airbnbs are not allowed anymore. So that's going to generate a nice tailwind. Yeah, we, ta- we talked about this recently with NPR, the Airbnb arbitrage. So if, for example, Manhattan puts its thumb on Airbnb, then you see Westchester and New Jersey and Garrison, New York and other places rye potentially booming or as you go upstate more there are people that want to get away and they want to flex remote work so mm-hmm. i see where your thinking is yeah so i mean if if i had my my pick i would i would definitely want to upstate new york 
in a town that has barriers of entry. And I would be hoping to look not something super luxury, but also not something kind of middle, like undifferentiated. I would, I like to call it like affordable luxury. And that's just because I think you're going to have the least kind of, that segment will be least impacted by the possible uh, recession because you're already dealing with people who are well off, but you know, they might want to just not spend a lot, but they still want something nice or just uh, like a nice lodging. So. What has your relationship been with the Airbnb and Verbo asset classes? I'm curious. I, you know, when I go visit my family in Miami, I stay, there's a Venezuelan super Airbnb host who handles everything remotely with us. But this is something that she effectively is in a condominium complex, which some floors are entirely Airbnb units. Have you dabbled in that? Um, yeah, I mean, I had, I had uh, a property on Airbnb. I think it's an, I think it's a very interesting asset class. I think that it gets tricky when you start putting in a lodging business in a residential area. Um, and in addition to that, you don't have like good management, right? So that's where you hear like the horror stories. And that's why I feel like there's a lot of backlash from governments into this. But I, I think it's a very interesting asset class. I think it, in many cases, the returns are higher because your fixed cost of capital is not as high as like a hotel, like a large hotel, right? Where where you have to, where you have like a high percentage of, of your revenue goes to cover for... Um, labor, yeah. Yeah, labor and also like amenities, pools, you know, lobbies, things like that, so... How, what were the perfect size of this property that falls into your lap? I mean, I, I want to you know close out by asking you how far you are in this process. Or I'm thinking of the U2 song. I still haven't found what I'm looking for <laughs> from 1987. Matt certainly underscored that excitement and that frustration in his piece in Bloomberg that there are no shortage of MBAs out there and even small private equity firms looking for opportunities like these. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. And so I started my search after I, I graduated, so in May. Um, so I've, you know, I've had a couple of months. It is, I mean, you know, generally, and, and I'm sure Matt covered it, uh, MBAs usually have like a two-year time frame to buy the right company, right? Because, and I think one of my professors said it best, your best outcome is to acquire the right company. Your second best outcome is to not acquire so you're you're better off not acquiring like some you know bad company than acquiring a bad company. So that's why you really want to take your time. And in terms of the size, uh, I think anything uh, between twenty to thirty units would be great um, for kind of what I'm trying to do. Just because it's it's a jump in terms of like what I'm used to or like uh, an evolution or, or improvement in terms of what I'm used to. But it's also not too big to where, you know, I've, I have a little bit of time to learn and then scale up. I think like that's something, a principle that I've had in my life is like, okay, yeah, take risk, but maybe not too far off, you know, especially if you kind of, it's something new that you're trying, so... Are you autonomous now in the dry powder in the money you do raise? So if somebody came to you and said, here, bingo, the opportunity, I found it in Ithaca or on the outskirts, the clean side of, of Niagara Falls, <laughs> I don't know, but they come to you. What do you have to do? Turn to other people like limited partners and say, I got it and I have this money and I'm making the case to you or are you autonomous to do it at this point? Yeah, absolutely. So and I, what I've done to make sure that our relationship with our investors are as smooth as possible is to essentially create a document that outlines, hey, this is kind of what I'm looking for. This is the price range. This is even the areas. This is why. So my it's an investment memo. They've agreed on the investment memo. So that's kind of what I'm looking for. And then once I come back, we'll talk about why this property fits the investment criteria and move forward. Close this out. How close are you? Or what are you allowed to tell us without ruining anything? If anything, I hope this gets the word out. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm uh, looking at a very interesting property in upstate New York. Um, and actually, do, I, do you know the Soho House? So they're Yes, of course. Big, they actually started, um, or they're working on a property in upstate New York as well. So... Um, I'm very excited about uh, this other property that's around that area. And will you tell us about, I mean, how uh, you, you said you go back to Colombia now. I'm wondering about the dialogue you have with your 19-year-old self as a fellow immigrant, someone who was terrified in coming here. I, of course, I came here in the late 70s to Miami. It's really, you're going to hear this a lot, but to, to come to Oakland with 
nothing. And to just say, I mean, it would be a reach for you to even finish community college. And then to have the hunger to continue the four-year degree and and do so well in that and then find yourself at companies like Google and others. That story is uh, spectacular. And now the challenge is to kind of translate it into something truly entrepreneurial and almost institutional. Close this out. I mean, what are what are your thoughts? You seem kind of fearless in doing it because you've you've persevered through so much worse. Yeah, I mean, I think I have uh, I'm very happy and satisfied and, and proud of myself and I'm really excited for this next chapter. I think that the investment criteria that I've laid out um, around, you know, upstate New York and different towns that are there, it's it's really resonating with investors. And the fact that the Soho House decided to open a property very close to what I was looking for. And I, I found this out after um, I set up my investment. Uh, makes me very excited about what's to come. And now it, for me is connect with more investors and uh, continue the search into finding the the right um, amazing company to grow and um, exit. Wow, Angela Romero, uh, her search fund is Wharton Capital Holdings, LLC. She's a recent graduate of the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business, is looking for that dream hotel, hospitality, lodging property. It could well be in mid-state or upstate New York. You gotta keep us posted on how this goes. Thank you so much, Robin. This was a terrific interview. I really appreciate your time. Good luck. Thank you. Have a good one. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan and Case Graham at Notterly. Again, if you're listening to us on the radio, note that while we often cut for broadcast link, the entirety of every interview is available on podcast. The link, please subscribe early and often, is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. Follow along on all the socials at handle fulldradio where you will find details on huge live events coming up at the University of Richmond, including in October, Steve Inskeep of NPR and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. A shout out to our listeners on NPR member station Radio IQ, down in North Carolina on WPVM, out in California on KPPQ. Message me if you'd like to carry full disclosure on your air. My DMs, as I like to say, are always open. And catch me every week on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week.